This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Permanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. This is our closing episode for this first season of Life Worlds. And I just want to take a second to thank you all so much for how you've interacted with the show and for your comments and feedback. It's been really, really wonderful to hear from you. You've informed a lot of my direction for where I think the second season can take us. So stay tuned and you will hear from me soon when that will be. When I was designing this series, I thought it would be a fitting closure to end with a conversation about nature connection mentorship and rites of passage. You've heard from so many voices in previous episodes on how they've learned to listen deeply to the land and voices around them. Today, to end this season, we're going to get into the how and how you can embark on this journey in a very intimate and personal way. Life worlding starts in the body. It starts with core skills that used to be central to pretty much all human cultures across time. These are ways of being in the body and in the land sometimes in solitude, for many days on end. Strangely, this should be basic stuff, and yet our modern world has rendered this knowledge practically extinct, or, at the least, paints it all as rather exotic or primitive. There was a time in which the land spoke vividly to each and every one of us. Every snap twig on a trail, every odor on the breeze, every utterance from a bird's beak, they would all be harboring a message guiding you through the undulations of a savanna or a steep canyon, the stakes being nothing else but your survival, your family's meal for the week, your escape from the jaws of a tooth predator. Imagine the heightened electric body of yours that would be pulsing through that land. Our homo sapien brains, our neuronal pathways, jolted and fused and tenderly sprouted new branches every time our eyes scanned the complexity of a living world trying to make sense of its miraculous expressions. This is a world I long to come home to, again and again and again. Now, I have to admit to you that a decade ago, bird language, solos in the land, tracking animal footprints, stooping down excitedly to inspect scat, uh, that is animal poop, even myth-telling, these things were just not part of my world. And now... They are the very things that keep me alive and keep me strong. I went on my first vision quest last summer, caught between thunderstorms and dust storms, alone, fasting in the land, caked in mud without a tent, howling and throwing boulders off clifftops in the dazzling ochre New Mexico desert. Yeah, something visceral and untranslatable happened to me out there. When I peeled away distractions and shed away domestication, life became crystal clear. There was a sheer simplicity and poetic resonance to everything. No boundary 
between myself and world. Our first guest, Taryn Silver, is going to explain what quests like these entail and why our culture so desperately needs them. Darren is a rite of passage guide, a nature-connected coach, wilderness crafter, and ceremonialist. For two decades, he's been working with teenagers and adults in initiatory practice, rituals, and wilderness skills. After Darren, you'll hear from John Young, who is a renowned elder and a pioneer in the fields of nature-based education, wildlife tracking, bird language, and I can attest firsthand a master storyteller. John's two books, What the Robin Knows, How Birds Reveal the Secrets of the Natural World, and Coyote's Guide to Connecting to Nature, both sit proudly on my bookshelf, tattered and dog-eared, having guided me on many an adventure. John will describe the ancient art of nature connection mentoring and the eight shields model that he developed. He will also bring us into delightful tales from his time spent living amongst the sand bushmen of Southern Africa and his love for bird language and the appearance in his life of a friendly turkey named Pete. Thank you for being here. And if you want to go deeper on the subjects we're broaching today, then do tune in to the full hours of our guests and write me if you'd like to know how to embark on your own journey of reconnection. Over now to our conversation with Darren. What a rite of passage looks like today is providing a ritual opportunity for people to step from one stage of life to the next. And oftentimes, to be able to step to the next stage of life, the next chapter, we have to address, we have to spend time with any unfinished business of the previous chapter or the chapter that we're currently in. It is most potent for me doing this in the context of the wilderness because the natural world is always mirroring back to us or reflecting back to us what is. So immersing ourselves in an environment that is constantly reflecting what is allows who we are to naturally come to the surface. It's like drawn out of us. And the layers fall off. The layers that stand between us and our true nature begin to be revealed. So in my world, the consequence of going through a rite of passage, of giving ourself up to the greater story of life, is that we realize that the purpose of living is not to get what we want. What we're being invited to is to participate in life as a generative force. What is it that happens out there in the land? Maybe you can describe what a vision quest is. What happens out there in the land? What's the process? There are these three kind of doors and stages. And why do people return changed? There's three stages that were really articulated by Arnold Van Gennep, uh, anthropologist. And it's severance, threshold, or liminality, and incorporation. And so the way that I guide quests, it's somewhere between eight and 10 days long. And the first two, three days are really devoted to connecting to nature. And severance is about separating ourselves from what is familiar, internally and externally. 
putting ourselves in a completely new environment, developing new routines that begin to move us into a place of having a different perspective or perception on ourselves and in life. You know, there's this question that fascinates me is how does the earth or nature communicate to me? And how do you communicate to the earth in a way that is just as real, as trusted as my conversation with you right now? And so that is a muscle that has to be developed in those first two or three days and carry through to the four days and four nights of fasting alone on the land. That in itself is a threshold for so many people, whether it's being alone on the land, whether it's fasting, the sense of exposure, like what about the elements? What about the heat or the humidity or you know the mosquitoes or the tiger snakes or all of it? That time of threshold or the liminal stage in anthropological terms is the between and betwixt. It's the conscious experimentation of one's intention. So in those first couple days of severance, it's really the clarification of why one is going out there. Like, what called you out there? And so you go out there and you begin to experiment, have a conscious experimentation with one's intent in that threshold period. And then after four days and four nights, you return. And the questions that drive me then are, what happened for you out there and how are you going to take this home? Oftentimes, it's heartbreaking. And every wilderness guide or transformational teacher in some sort is always like, yeah, incorporation, like how do we take this home? It's always really hard and it always will be because we live in a transition time and we don't have a genuine culture. So it's like I had this magnificent experience and where does it fit into the world? So anybody that does this work of a quest or transformational learning, we have a real tall order ahead of us to bring what we received back into the world because the world doesn't want it. (laughs) It is a direct confrontation with what's happening. When we bring the consciousness of the earth, we have to have really strong swords to do that. I mean, one of the biggest things that happen out there is we find how courageous we really are. And we need people that can go out there and surrender themselves to life. The conversation that can happen you carry that with you for the rest of your life. Like I have never walked in a landscape in the same way again, knowing how I can listen to other creatures and species and weather patterns and dynamics to bring it down to something tangible. Is there a story that you could share? Something that can make this come alive for people who are listening in terms of what that communication could be or what that interconnection can be perceived as? Um. It was guiding a quest. This is years ago, and it was in Utah. And there was a young man that came down from the quest. And one of the biggest pieces he came down with is he goes, I realized that around the planet at sunrise, there is this great wave of bird song." that is all about beauty, that is going across the planet. And that if I can just wake up with that song every day, then I will be participating in life. It's that simple, but it leveled this guy. All of a sudden, he had ground and orientation 
if I can just start every day with this cacophony of sound, of song, of beauty that's always going around the planet, you know, as the eyelid of the world is opening. I mean, there is so many. I mean, there's one guy, this is maybe a year ago, he came back after his four days and four nights, and it looked like he had crawled out of the darkest, deepest, most thorny place. I mean, he looked like he crawled out of hell. When I guide, I check in spiritually, let's say. I check in with everybody. And every time I checked in with him, I was like, man, he is on the edge of wanting to leave. He is ready. Every moment he's wanting to leave. And he came back. And this particular character had done, let's say, 40 or 50 ayahuasca ceremonies. And he came back and he was like, by far, this is the hardest thing I have ever done. Like, it was more challenging than all of those previous ceremonies combined. And he started to tell his story. And again, he has like this flavor that he had done it all wrong. And after he shared his story, it was like what he did out there was reenact ritually every trauma that he had experienced in his life in the most creative, painful ways I could ever imagine. This is a man who his parents were addicts to the point of them administering him to psychiatric hospitals for four days at a time so they could go on binges. And he would be put in stray jackets and drugged up himself. He ritually went through all of those experiences. And he came back and it, after he shared, he's putting his head down going, oh my God, I totally failed. And you know, my job as a guide was to step in and say, oh no, no, you just finally encountered all of those stories in a way that you could transform them into what makes you the courageous man, the man that has all these gifts for the young ones that are struggling. The same quest, another person is out there. And the whole time, I mean, this guy came down and was like, when the moon came up, I had a slow dance with the moon for hours at a time. Across the desert moonlight, I danced with the moon. Meanwhile, Thorny guy is staring at this guy. He's like, you fucker. I was being pulled through the backbones of hell and you're like dancing with the moon. Exactly. Oh man, the human experience. It's so varied, so varied. I'm struck that this is actually a really interesting time to talk about myth because you work a lot with myth. You've written a beautiful myth that I had the chance of listening to. And myth is different to story, I, I believe. They're not completely distinct, but how does a myth reflect a place? Is there maybe a, an example that you could give? Like, how are myth and place connected? So I'm not going to answer your question directly. <laughs> Trickster. <laughs> by the very spirit of mythos. We have places within us that, if not maintained, if not recognized, wither. And so mythologies help us to travel the landscapes of our interior. And I'm not speaking purely psychologically here, like actually travel to places and landscapes within us. And it provides a bridge that allows those places to then be in conversation with places externally. 
there's this incredible myth that you shared with me and that I recently heard Martin Scholl speak about, and I, I obviously love a lot of the ways that he recounts some of these myths, which is, you know, the tale of the handless maiden. She wasn't a princess yet, but she had the makings of it. You could kind of tell the beginning of the story and through sorcery and a bad spirit and a series of unfortunate events, I'm not going to tell the whole myth, but she basically has to clamber through this wild forest, overgrown forest, without her hands, bleeding stumps, encounters all sorts of disasters, then emerges on the other side, this incredible life takes place, and then she has to go back into this wild thicket of a forest. And I just remember when I was hearing the story being like, holy shit, I am that maiden right now trying to figure my way through this freaking forest with hands cut off, bleeding all over the place, not knowing where I'm going, just trying to find my like wood sisters. And I identified myself so profoundly with who she was at a point in the myth. And I'm sure in two years, I would identify with her at another point in the myth. And I think that seeing ourselves in these characters, in these stories, enables us to tap into a part of our own being that there's maybe no place for it in like my day-to-day life. But I hear this myth and I identify and I'm like, okay, that's where I'm at. And then I can maybe go into the forest, the physical forest around my home and recreate that somehow and recreate that challenge. And I think that the more that you can identify all aspects of the human experience, the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful that is inside of each of us, if we can see it in the story, we can see it in ourselves. And therefore, when it occurs in the world, in any form, it's familiar to us. Like, there's that. I identify it. I see it. I know you. And it could come in the form of an animal and it could come in the form of a car that looks strange. But like, we start to see these patterns. And maybe there's also an element of what you're describing is that myth allows us to see patterns. And those patterns are inside of ourselves and they're inside of the landscape. And it's almost like the braille code that you can touch to figure out where you might be going. Yeah. You know, what really strikes me about the handless maiden is she goes out into the wilderness without her hands. In other words, hers, our ability to shape life, to touch life. For her, for us, when we go out into the wilderness sometimes, it is utterly about us being shaped. We can't use our hands to manipulate the environment for better or for worse. There is a complete surrendering. That story in particular teaches us something about going out and returning brings life back to the human realm. You've sort of trained and done all of these different ways of getting in touch with the land. You carve, you make things. There's like a deep physicality to your being. Where do people start? Like I can imagine that, you know, people might say, wow, this all sounds great. How the hell do I get started? Are there simple ways that people can begin to be embodied, to listen to the land around them? What is the most practical advice that you could give aside from a quest, aside from going into the land, which I truly wish for every single human being? Yeah. There's two things I'll share. One is called the Fox Walk. And the Fox Walk is walking at the pace of one step every three seconds. And just to be clear, it's not like one step, one, two, three, one step, one, two, three, but it's one fluid motion where our feet meet the ground every three seconds in a fluid motion while incorporating wide-angle vision. 
wide angle vision, a way to practice it is like looking on the landscape, finding a fixed point like a tree, and then allowing our vision to get wider and wider to a point where I can see the tips of my fingers wiggling in my periphery. So to fox walk in wide angle vision for five or 10 minutes will put us into the heartbeat and rhythm of the earth. The second thing is finding a sit spot, a place nearby where you can sit in nature. Both of those come from the tracker school. And so it's a place that you can commit. Like I can go there three days a week. I can go there once a week. I can go there at sunrise and sunset every day. And it's a spot in nature where you can go to observe nature, to track, to pray, to look inward, to give thanks. In college, I would practice presentations out there, call in all the trees and say, please listen. The way I say it is trees are the greatest bullshit detectors. (laughs) They would lean in and take the BS out of my presentation so I could speak with passion and speak from my heart. So the sit spot and the fox walk are, are very simple. And even if you live in a city, there are open spaces. Unless you're on the moon, we're not cut off. Even if you're walking down the street in the city, there's often little trees poking out of the sidewalk or big trees sometimes. Like the spirit of nature is always there, always here. And in the sit spot, you're just taking in everything that you see. You're just observing. You're observing and observing. And it's kind of a regular ritualized pattern of observance where you're sitting and seeing how a place changes over time. Yeah. Throughout seasons. Absolutely. So on the sit spot, it's allowing your senses to be roads of information. I mean, what does the creek, I have a creek here, like what does the creek actually smell like? And to get so enraptured in that, what is the music of the creek? You know, what's the voice? Spend some time with where is it that you're called? Can you follow it? Even if it's one hour a week. Yeah. Can you follow that call? Even if it's five minutes, we have to start somewhere. You know, doing that can move us in a trajectory that in a year or two years is a completely different place than we were. That was Darren Silver enticing us all to become initiates in the wild ways of the earth. Our second guest today is John Young who's been engaged in nature connection mentoring for over 40 years. John has started both the Wilderness Awareness School in Washington and the H. Shields Institute in California and has co-authored countless works on tracking bird language and sensory awareness. You're in for a treat. And so without further ado, over to John. It isn't just information that's going on here because each of these relationships that you form The child forms a relationship with the scorpion, with this particular bush that gives these delicious berries, the velvet raisin bush. They learn that the pied babbler, which is a bird, makes this call that tells them when the lions are on the move. Through all of these shared stories, they learn, but they also build relationships. And what they say is that when we first make that relationship with another being, it's a thread that forms between us. And... If we see that same being, and I'm not talking about the same species, I'm talking about that individual being. So like here in our yard, we have this one turkey who comes through every day, a couple times a day with his little friend. The two of them hang out. They're two males. He's kind of mentoring this younger turkey along. 
they're about two years apart. This one guy's five years old and the other one's three years old. The bigger one, we named him Pete. So when I say that being, I'm talking about Pete, right? And I'm using this example of this uh, very real bird that lives in the area around my home. First day we saw Pete, there was a thread there, right? But now we've been living here for a year and a half and we see him almost every day. There's a couple months in the year when the turkeys all go somewhere else. I don't know where they go, but then they come back again. I now have a rope with Pete, you know, like the thread over time became a string, became a cord, became a rope. And what that means is that, for instance, yesterday I was sitting out on my patio and I heard Pete make a particular sound. And because of my bond with him, I pay attention to that. It's like if your child makes a sound, you're going to pay attention to that because you have a bond with your child. Whereas if you're out in the park and a child makes a certain sound, you pay no attention to it. You have no bond there. Unless, of course, they're screaming and they really need help. Then you recognize that. But these little communications are very subtle. And so if if you don't have that bond, you're not paying attention. But that little sound that Pete made caught my attention. I said, what's the matter? And then I noticed all the baby turkeys suddenly flushed and flew up into a tree. That little sound he made was a warning that the other turkeys understood. And I turned and looked to my right, and there was a coyote standing 20 feet away, just standing in the grass looking at me. This is an example of how these ropes, as the Bushmen say, there's energy that flows through the ropes and they can be pulled in either direction. Pete can tug on me. I can tug on Pete. So I think people can relate to this kind of bonding when they think about pets. We develop these extraordinary bonds with pets. And that means a lot to people in modern times because sometimes they're the only healthy bonds we have. You know, the other human bonds aren't even as good as what we have with our pet. Well, just imagine if you had that kind of bond with all of the trees and all of the birds and all of the animals, the stars, the wind, the rain, the cycles of the moon, the sun, the earth, the soil itself, the sand, the clay, you know, that's what the Bushmen say. This is what it means to be Bushmen. We make ropes with everything. Let's delve into the difference that you would experience if you were being mentored into this rope-making connection with other living beings versus if you were being taught by someone to connect with nature, quote-unquote. What would be your felt experience as the receiver of either mentorship or a teaching relationship? Well, if I'm in a mentoring relationship with someone, I'm basically doing for them what was done for me. And the reason I have the ability to mentor is because when I was a child, my father's ancestors emigrated from Ireland during the potato famine. They all enclaved in a rural area of New Jersey, and they stayed there for multiple generations. So there was like, there wasn't a lot of blending outside the community, right? The Irish stayed with the Irish. So the culture stayed alive there. The mentoring stayed alive there. When my mother's ancestors came over from Poland and Lithuania, they settled in farm country, not far from where Irish town was. And that's what that little village was called, Irish town. They stayed together. All these different Polish and Lithuanian families farmed around each other and when you look at the old photographs, there's like 25 people in every picture, you know, they're absolutely bonding, right? So when I was a little boy, my grandmother on the Irish side taught me to read from field guides, the little nature guides, the golden guides. But she would send me out. She'd say, oh, look, this frog on the range map, this frog lives here. Have you ever seen it? And I said, well, 
yeah, I know where that frog lives. She says, oh, well, you go catch that frog for me and bring it back and show it to me because I'd really like to see it. You know, so this is a classic grandmother mentoring thing going on here. So out I go, I find the frog, I get it in a bucket and I bring it back to her. And then we make a little terrarium for it and we give it a name and I'm allowed to keep it for a couple of days. And if I can't figure out what it eats and if it doesn't eat, I have to bring it right back to where I got it from. But I have to give it a name. So as you can see, she's building that rope with me, right? But when I come back from catching the frog, I have to tell her the whole story. And when I tell her the story, she gets curious about pieces of the story. And she asks me questions. Then now I have to go back and live that story anew in my mind. I have to go back there and look around for what my grandmother's asking because I didn't notice it when I was there. Now I'm trying to go back and recover that, that which I didn't pay attention to when I was at the frog pond. So when I come back to my present state, I'm like, I, I didn't notice Nanny, you know, and she says, well, maybe you can go back there tomorrow and check for Grant Nanny, you know, so she's sending me back out to fill in my blind spots. This is classic nature connection mentoring, right? My great aunt was just like that too. So, you know, whether I was with my grandmother on the Irish side or my great aunt on the Polish side, they were both doing that, each in their own style. Great aunt Carrie, she would get me to listen. She had broken English. She was born in Poland. We would walk for hours along the bay in this wild area along Island Beach State Park. And she wouldn't say one word to me. Everything was squeeze my hand if she wanted me to pay attention, gesture with her chin towards what she wants me to pay attention to. And in silence, we would watch the gull throw its head back and sing. And I could feel her bond and love for that magical moment conveying to me. I loved spending time with her. It was always in silence. And she would, when we got back to the house, she would tell me that the birds can talk to us and tell us things, you know, and she would tell me stories about that. She had this very deep spiritual relationship with the earth. My grandmother had a very practical relationship with the earth, you know, like the hunter-gatherer kind of energy, right? Go gather these berries, bring them back for nanny, I'll make a pie. When I was older, go catch some fish and bring them back and I'll cook them for dinner. This is mentoring in childhood, right? And then when I work with adults, I realize that they've never had that very, very basic bonding with place guided by a grandmother. And it's the kind of thing that little kids just instinctively want to do. So when you're working with an adult, I mean, you can talk theory about nature connection all day and it doesn't do a thing. The trickiest part is to get an adult to go back and relive the childhood they didn't get because you can't skip that. There's primary nervous system relationships that form as we build relationships with the frogs and the trees and the birds and the animals that forms a neural network. And that neural network has a emergent property that you can't fake. You know what I mean? It's going to emerge out of the built relationships. All those bonds are giving information in both directions. This sphere of awareness grows around us. You know, so when you're mentoring adults who haven't been mentored as children, you basically have to find an adult way to make it palatable, but get them to relive experiences that they didn't get in childhood to build those basic neuromuscular pathways and get that software to open that was never opened. They got the operating system, but they never opened the software that runs it. So that's what we're doing. And we're doing it through questioning. It sounds to me like 
this mentorship capability, it grants a lot of agency and a lot of equality, actually, between whoever may be the mentor and the mentee. And it's saying, you know this, go out, find it, return, like speak, share, versus I am going to tell you what this is. And so you're activating that sensory awareness, that curiosity in that little kid or that adult that's going out because they have to come back with something. It's not going to be given to them. It may be an obvious question, John, but why does it matter to have these wheels and these principles and these 512 different practices? And why does this matter in today's world and in other worlds from previous times, but I think especially today's world? God, there's a thousand ways to answer that, but I will start by saying there was this one consultant, brilliant consultant who helped us for three and a half years, who observed that the children that grew up with this mentoring model were wholesome, they were happy, they were vital, they were very much themselves, really full of spark in life and interest in things. They were empathetic. They had this extraordinary capacity to listen. They were not distracted when you were speaking to them. They were holding space, you know. So this man's in his 60s and he's talking to these people in their early 20s and he's it's like, where did these people come from? You know, and he went all around the world and visited all these different locations where these principles landed all over German speaking countries and all over North America. And he said, it's remarkable. All the children who grew up with this have a wholesomeness and a health and empathy. And, you know, as he began talking to me, began to discover that when these kids were in high school, when their friend was suicidal, they were the ones who kept them from making a choice that would take them that way and brought them back from anxiety. And like, so they're already reaching out and helping and healing their peers. So just already that right there is enough. But every single one of them has grown into these powerful leaders. Like they're all thought leaders in their own right. And they have this tremendous commitment to taking care of the earth and the future generations, right? So in that story, isn't there's enough, right? But I've worked with so many adults who over five, six years mentoring them have watched them go on the same journey where they shifted from, you know, recycling sort of to becoming activated within five or six years. Where, and I never tell them, you need to become an activist for the earth. I never say that. I never tell them that. As you said, agency. One of the agreement fields is what we call the culture of allowance, that everybody is free to make their own choices here. We're just going to support their choices and ask reflective questions so that they can really think about the implications of the choices that they're making. But we're not challenging their choice. We're challenging them to think for themselves and to use all their awareness and connection to make really well-informed choices. Well, if you do that with people long enough, and then they start connecting to the earth in the way that I was talking about, that remedial way, packaged for adults. Well, don't you know, all of a sudden their hearts open and they become really empathetic. And all of a sudden they start to say, oh my God, this earth is so beautiful. This earth is so magical. And it's such a gift to be alive. It's a gift to be alive. It's a blessing. And boy, the children of the future, they need this as much as I have nourished from this. I need to do everything in my power in my life to influence for a better world in the future. You know, those two different stories, people becoming more wholesome and caring people for each other, finding their own path, activating their own genius, and caring about the future and 
really shouldering up and doing things. They're not just recycling anymore. You know, they're finding ways to change systems and structures that could benefit the earth. So what if we could get all 9 billion people into a five-year program? You know, what would happen? Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that there's such a gap between telling people that we're experiencing these massive traumatic global events and you should love the earth and you should care and you should and you should and you should and you should versus, okay, but then how do those people who are receiving all that information actually come at it from a place of excitement and care and genuine love and curiosity and so that these practices, these teachings, these mentorships are ways that you can bridge just information overload, inertia and paralysis with a very embodied, intuitive, as you said, like neurologically hardwired into us way of responding that will be unique to every single individual. I think that's, it's a really beautiful way of, of looking at the original etymology of education, which is educare, right? Is to draw out. It is that mentorship aspect of which you spoke. And it, there's this basic education that we should have as kids and definitely as adults, if you know we're leaders or heading up important quote-unquote initiatives. So I don't know if that resonates, but it seems to me that that's kind of what you're speaking to. It strikes me that our bodies are incredibly overloaded today with so much information coming in, right? From our technological devices, from just pollution everywhere, noise pollution, visual pollution. Does heightening our sensitivity and our awareness to the natural world feel different to that? Does it feel like overload where all of a sudden you're picking up on everything and it's so much, I don't know how to process it. You know, I can imagine someone listening and they're like, gosh, I'm already overloaded by the world. Why would I want to add to that by suddenly hearing everything the birds are saying and freaking out that someone's coming out from over there? Like, is it desirable to add more? It's uh, apples and oranges. The quality of information coming from this is not the same. Sometimes it's downright painful to read an article, right? And I don't mean like it's emotionally painful, but it's just like, oh, I wish you would just say it more simply or whatever. You know, you're just like, this is painful to try to read this. I want this information, but it's, I'm having a hard time. It never feels that way. There's no such thing as disinformation or misinformation or even interpretation. What that black-headed grosbeak is saying is pure and it's true in the spirit of that bird in that moment. The birds do not lie. They don't fabricate. They don't interpret. They express purely. Your nervous system nourishes from that like a vitamin. Like nature to your nervous system is a vitamin. And it's a very wholesome vitamin. Information is not like that. Information, it can almost be toxic. As you already described, information overload, it's like a sickness, and it really is. You don't get that from nature. It does not happen. It doesn't happen. Your body's just like, thank God, finally. It's like you've been thirsty all your life, and you finally get to drink clean, cool, pure water. How good that tastes. That's what nature is to us. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast today. And as I mentioned earlier... This concludes the first season of the show. Sign up to our email list on our website to stay tuned for when the next season will come out. And as per our tradition, we will end with a fun fact to bring you into a rather unexpected life world. 
Did you know that amongst all of the interspecies collaborations we've talked about, there is one that really stands out, and it has to do with bird language. In Mozambique, there lives a small brown bird called a honey guide. And this bird needs human hands to help them break the casings of beehives so that they can go and feed on the sweet beeswax that lies inside. On the savannah, they make distinctive calls that are destined only for these human partners. In this case, the local indigenous Yao people, who themselves, unsurprisingly, love and value honey. You could say that they are also honey hunters themselves. Once bird and human have found each other, the bird guides the hunter to the tree where the beehive is waiting to be found. And together, with the human's hands and the bird's beak, they reap the rewards of honey and beeswax. Interestingly, the Yao people have also developed a call to summon the honey guide birds to them. This seems to be, so far, one of the only recorded cases in which a human and wild animal call to each other to undertake a task together. It has been suggested that this mutual call has emerged over thousands of years and began with our primate ancestors. Think about that for a long-term collaborative partnership. That's it for me, Alexa Firminish, your host on Life Worlds. I'll miss you and be well until the next time we meet. Thank you so much for tuning in.